Hey Life Canton, Roger here, Director of Student and Adult Ministries. Just so glad that you are joining us for a brand new series, whether you're a returning listener uh, or a brand new one. Uh, either way, be sure to like, subscribe, all that good stuff, so you can get the different podcasts we put out. Uh, if you haven't heard our podcast on Radical Generosity yet, uh, be sure to go back to uh, our podcast on our position paper on Radical Generosity yet. Be sure to go back and listen to last week, because uh, that's going to give you some context for this new series. Um, but speaking of generosity, uh, one of the ways in which we are called uh, and have an opportunity to be generous is by giving to the mission of God's church and what he's up to, uh, up to specifically in our congregation and in our community. So uh, one way to do that is by giving. You can head over to our Life Church uh, kit and forward slash give page or our church center app, uh, but be sure to take that opportunity. Uh, like I said, brand new series today, a uh, series on we're calling Radical Generosity, a discussion of what um, what radical generosity looks like in in some of the steps we can take to work towards a uh, more radically generous heart. Um, This week is going to be Pastor Jared, and he's going to kick off a discussion of how we move from scarcity to freedom. Give that a listen, and I'll catch up with you in just a second. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Life Canton. How are we doing today? Good. It is good to see you. I am glad that you are here with us. My name is Jared, and I am one of the pastors, and I would love to make sure that you get connected. And so the best way to do that is there's going to be a QR code on the screen. If you've never used one before, you just grab your phone, open up that photo or camera app, and scan that code, and it's going to take you directly to our Connect card. Uh, Otherwise, you can just visit us out in the lobby, and we'd be happy to help uh, you take a next step and get connected here. Here's uh, the thing that we like to say. Uh, We like to talk about about our vision, what we see going forward, who we want to be, the kind of people that we are and are becoming, is uh, that we want to reclaim our identity in Jesus and bear the torch of Christ's justice and love. And so I'm really excited about that vision. We're really excited about moving forward with that vision. Uh, But that means we need to talk about identity. We talk about identity a lot. And actually, uh, the series that we're in right now is called Radical Generosity. Generosity has a lot to do with our identity. And last week, we kicked off the series by talking about our position paper on generosity. What, What do we think about money? What do we think about giving? What do we think about consumerism and our possessions and our relationship with all of that. And we talked about how that impacts our hearts. Uh, our, our ability to be generous affects the condition of our heart. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But we shared a bit of our background, our, our, our story, uh, the guys that were here on stage, me and Pastor Nathan and Franz, we shared a bit of our story. But we thought, you know, sometimes it's helpful to understand a wide array of stories so that we can find ourselves in their story a little bit and understand and, and maybe not feel uh, ashamed or feel anxiety when it comes to conversations around money, to be able to look at somebody else's story and be like, yeah, yeah, now I don't feel so alone when I hear their story. So what I want you to do is I want you to listen to some of the stories of other folks on our staff who had very different backgrounds with money. Ooh. For me, it was confusing. First of all, I'm one of seven children, and so you can kind of imagine how that played a big role in how tight money might have been. I would say that money was often a source of anxiety for me. I wanted to get a Mongoose Menace bike for, uh, I was probably 10 or 11, 12 years old. 
And my mom was like, all right, if you want it, you're going you're gonna to save for it. And I want to teach you how to save. And it was a really cool experience doing that. It was kind of excruciating how long I had to wait and save, but then we went and got it. And it was just this really awesome moment of knowing that I saved for this thing and I bought it with my own money. Money was like a Pokemon. It was interesting to find when you came by it, you loved it and you held on tight to it. We got creative, you know, with with things. I, you know, we weren't really, we were used to just kind of being content with things, I would say. Um, and I think my parents taught me a good work ethic. I was working at the age of 13, homeschooled, so I was able to work a little bit too, working and had my own checking account, checkbook, the whole thing. But then, on the other hand, my parents fought about money all the time. And so there was this confusing relationship that I had with it because on one hand, I'm learning to save and experiencing the joy of that. On the other hand, I'm feeling, um, and I don't use this word lightly, trauma with money because my parents would literally fight about it. And it wasn't physically with each other, but they would get in arguments in the kitchen. There was food flying. There was a lot of um, turmoil and, and heartbreak for me. I probably didn't think much about money as a little kid, but certainly the older I got, the more it, it became a source of anxiety. I started working when I was 16 to save for college, to save for a car, and once I actually got my car, uh, it felt like every bit I saved wound up just getting taken back away to fix my car. <laughs> it felt like an endless cycle of starting to save money and then something would happen that was out of my control. Money equals fighting is, is part of what that message brought to me. And I brought that into my marriage to the point where when Liz and I would have conversations about the budget, I would literally get up and walk out of the room. And I didn't realize I was doing it. And she had to help me realize, like, where are you going when we talk about money? Because you're literally leaving me. You're abandoning me with this thing. And that convicted me. And I had to realize, oh, my goodness, that is attached to what I observed in my parents. And I had to reframe my relationship with money. Probably the biggest barrier to wanting to give is the insecurity or fear if you're not going to have more or where to find more or is more guaranteed. There were several times in college where I literally had no money because every dime got taken to something that I could not control. And I had to rely on other people around me to financially support me. And I hated that. <laughs> There's a huge humility in that and having to to say, I don't have anything. And when people offer needing to say yes, and the last thing that I wanted was to be a financial burden. When we were in church, I remember every week my dad would pull one of us on, our, on his lap and give us 20 and have us put it in the offering. So like he literally wanted us to be involved in that. And it, you know, the message in that is, we we support the mission of the church. We give, and we're glad to give. So the, again, it's confusing, right? Because you you have the fighting, but then you also have the generosity there. And I felt like my parents were extremely generous. Um, I'll be honest to say that because I was a Jehovah's Witness and learned 
that things were given on a donation basis and some people wouldn't give anything. They would take the materials and we had, I had no problem. Here you go, whatever you want. Um, but then learned that churches pass plates and they talk about money. I actually was guarded about that. And one of the church experiences that I went to early in my Christianity was, um, I would say kind of more prosperity gospel. And so I was pretty taken off, turned off by this spending an entire half hour on making a big to-do about coming to the front altar and giving your thing and praying over it and making, you know, and talking about how we're going to make sure that the pastor gets that helicopter and whatever. I'm just like totally turned off by that. made me guarded. But I think we have a tendency to hold on to our possessions as our own. And it becomes really intertwined with identity. I mean, we look at socioeconomic status, wealth status as part of our identity. It's you know, in the list of things that we feel like make up who we are. And so when, when we get really possessive over our things, um, when we forget that Jesus says, you know, what we have is not ours, it's been given to us, then it's, it's hard to give away money when it feels like it makes up part of who you are. That's good. Uh, I love how Jaden finishes that last thought, that this is tied to our identity. Our, our hearts and minds are tied up and connected to the emotional impact that money has in our lives. And we're going to talk more about that. I wonder if you can find yourself uh, in any person's story, maybe a part of their story. Uh, I am genuinely curious how many of you felt like Franz, money was like a Pokemon Maybe uh, some of you are like, I don't even know what a Pokemon is. That's totally fine. Uh, but that's what Franz said. And I, I had to cut out my laughter in, in the video because you can hear me laughing. I'm like, I don't, I don't know where you're going with this, but I'm really intrigued. I want to know, what do you mean money is like a Pokemon? But maybe you can find yourself in any one of these stories. And, and maybe your experience is completely different from all of that. And that's fine. That we all have unique stories and unique backgrounds and they form and shape our understanding of money. And then you add the church on top of that. You add the idea of giving away money on top of that. And it throws a wrench and maybe, as John said, it throws confusion into how you relate to money and how you understand uh, the topic of generosity on top of your understanding of money. And what we said in our position paper is we, we kind of unfolded this vision or, or pathway, if you will, to take that, that we want all of us to move from scarcity to freedom, from freedom to contentment, and ultimately from contentment to abundance. And, and that journey uh, could look uh, really different depending on who you are and depending on what your experiences are. And as you look at that list, you might be like, man, I'm in a scarcity mindset right now. Abundance seems like a million miles away. And so what I want to do is recognize that one. I want to tell a little bit of my story too, because my story is one of a scarcity mindset. And I'll talk more about what that means. But also, I just want to talk about how we get from scarcity to freedom. I'll read one of the sections of our position paper and it says this. It says, as we submit to God, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. God's spirit transforms our hearts away from fear-based scarcity and consumerism and toward freedom. I want to talk about that little piece today and how our hearts and our minds are wrapped up in this. Last week, we talked primarily about the heart. Today, I want to talk about the mind. How do we renew our minds? Well, first of all, let's talk about that word scarcity. What does that word even mean? 
Uh, simply, we could define it as this. It's in short supply. You don't have enough resources. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough to get by to take care of your basic needs. But we're going to talk about a scarcity mindset, which is a little bit different. A scarcity mindset has nothing to do with what's in your bank account. Uh, you, you could, in fact, be extremely poor, but still have the mindset of, I'm poor, I'm not going to make it, this is not okay, and live in a paralyzing fear and anxiety. And that's very real, and that's actually a lot of my story. But you could also have a lot. As Nathan said last week, you could be Jeff Bezos and still have a scarcity mindset. You could still look at all of your stuff and think in your minds, I, I don't have enough. I still need more. I need more. So it, it doesn't matter what's in your bank account. It doesn't matter what you own. You could still experience a mindset that keeps you stuck. And so Paul, who I like to call a first century neurologist, because uh, I'm a nerd, um, is, is concerned about the mind. How do we renew our minds? We're going to get into that, but first I want to talk about the first century church. And uh, what we're going to do for the next the rest of our series is we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just the first few verses, and talk about this journey from scarcity ultimately to abundance. And so if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible or don't own a Bible, let us know. We'd love to get you one. Uh, and then otherwise, it'll be on the screens if you want to follow along in that way. Starting in verse 1. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, and he says this, Now I want you uh, to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They're being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they're also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege in sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than what we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish the ministry of giving. Now, since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, or some translations say for us, I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. Now, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. There's a little dig right there from Paul, right? Like, oh, okay. Yeah, you do you. You do, do what you need to do. But, you know, I'm just, just, just know that I'm going to be back here and I'm going to be testing the genuineness of your love. <laughs> okay. Great. What do you do with that? It, I don't know, for some of you, for me, that feels a little manipulative. I don't think that that's the heart of Paul. I, I think he's genuinely trying to inspire them to say, hey, you need to recognize that there are people who are in very different circumstances than what y'all are in. That, that last bit is, is a comparative statement as well as verses one and two. Paul's saying, I, I want to do some work here. I want to compare your circumstances. I want to compare what you experience versus what the churches in Macedonia experience. 
I want to show you a map actually and describe um, with geography the differences of these places. Macedonia, Corinth, we don't necessarily maybe have a concept for that. But in the top there in the big red circle, that's a whole area uh, referred to as Macedonia. There are multiple churches in Macedonia that who uh, Paul is talking about. But then who he's speaking to now in this letter is the church in Corinth. And it's that specific area. Now, what we're looking at is Corinth is kind of in the central hub of the Mediterranean. In the first century, this is a major port for all of the, uh, the trade and the commerce and the culture to happen. Uh, th- there's a lot going on in Corinth. They have tons of resources. We hear from Paul, Macedonia, uh, they're poor. Th- they have very uh, short supply. They are living in scarcity, literally living in scarcity. It's, it's an agricultural-based uh, uh, area. There, there's lots of poor farmers. They don't have a lot. Corinth, to put, it, uh, to put it bluntly, Corinth is bougie, right? Like they, they got resources. They've got what they need. And they are at the central location where all of this stuff is coming and flowing. They're wealthy. They are not in scarce supply at all. And Paul is saying, I want you to understand the difference in your circumstances. And, and in fact, because of that, Here's what I say in verse three, for I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. They did it of their own free will. In fact, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They gave beyond what they could even afford. Paul's saying, Corinthians, I want you to listen here. I want you to understand that there are people in other parts of the world who are far worse off than you, but are giving more proportionately to what they have. And not only that, but they give to some place in Jerusalem. Like what, what is going on? Let's go back to that map for just a second. I want you to see where Jerusalem is. They're way down in the corner here. And, and Macedonia, to, to the Macedonian churches, Jerusalem's like might as well be on the other side of the world. They might as well be another planet. They, they've never been to Jerusalem, right? Like they didn't go there for spring break one time. Like they didn't even go on spring break, okay? They're poor. They got nothing. But somehow they had heard about a need in Jerusalem, that the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem were uh, needing help. And this is, this is the place where their Lord, where Jesus was, died and was crucified and buried and where he resurrected. Something must be going on in Jerusalem. Wait, there, there's a need in Jerusalem? Yeah, we want to give. Of course, we're going to give. And they gave beyond what they could even afford because they heard about the need. Their hearts were so moved toward generosity. And Paul wants to tell the Corinthian church, hey, these Macedonians, they have no knowledge of what's going on. They probably don't even know these folks down in Jerusalem. And yet they gave beyond what they could. This is crazy. This is ridiculous. Why would the Macedonians do this? Well, there's something in their mindset that causes them to do this. Some scholars argue that because of their great joy and mixed with their poverty, that they had less dependence on their things, on their money. In fact, they had a greater dependence on God and the community. See, if you grow up in a, in a poor environment, oftentimes you have no choice but to rely on those around you. Hey, I got what you need. You got what I need. Let's share. Let's come together. You don't have a choice if you're living in dire straits. But here's the thing. When you have more There's a greater risk. There's more to lose. But also when you have more, sometimes you recognize that you don't need to depend 
on anything else or anyone else. You certainly probably don't need to depend on God because you believe in the lie of self-reliance. I've got what I need. I earned what I got. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. And so you learn to depend on yourself. Why do you have any need for God who calls himself Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides? You don't need that. You got what you need because you made it for yourself. But these Macedonians, they have no choice but to depend on God. And it's not an obligation for them. It's out of their great joy and abundance. They have this abundant mindset. Their supply is scarce, but their mindset doesn't seem to be. Corinth, by comparison, has a lot to live up to. You have a lot to live up to, and Paul's hoping that this comparison will inspire them a little bit. Now, I need to stop there because I don't know about you. I don't know what your story is, but for somebody who lives with a scarcity mindset, comparison doesn't always go the whole way. Comparison, it maybe is a little bit to inspire, but it's not enough to catalyze long-term sustainable transformation and renewal of our minds. I'm not sure that it can go the whole distance because if you're in a scarcity mindset, it controls you. It controls your heart and your mind. You can't think about anything else. You could hear about some needs across the other, you know, the other oceans or around the world or around your community, and it might inspire you a little bit, but it's not going to move you toward long-lasting transformation. And for me, in my scarcity mindset for much of my life, I would go to bed with panic attacks, thinking, how am I going to make that next bill? Which bill should I pay? Which bill should I not panic attacks about money. And just to give you a little bit of a a comparison or or context from my story, I I grew up in the church. I was a pastor for 13 years at this other church, and I could hear about all of these needs around the world. And yeah, my heart would be moved a little bit, but what my daily surroundings were ultimately formed my thinking and formed my mindset. Because I lived in an extremely affluent uh, uh, suburb, uh, where they, the median household income was 100000 per year. That was normal. That was, that was the median. There were other people making well above that. When I first started at the church that I was at, for the first five years, I was making less than a quarter of that. And so I'm sitting by these folks and hearing about how I should increase my giving and how I should tithe and how I should do all this stuff with my money. And I'm looking at people sitting side by side with people who are making four times as much as what I'm making. And I'm comparing myself to them. I'm not comparing myself to the people halfway across the world who are in great need. I'm comparing myself to the people around me and thinking, well, man, I, I feel like I'm the one in need here. I can't even, I can't even make my rent. I can't even uh, get the name brand peanut butter. I got to get Target brand peanut butter. Like I'm doing all of these things in my head. It's messing with my head. I'm trying to learn how to be generous. I'm a pastor at the same time. And I'm looking at people who are doing far better than I am. And then I'm also thinking I should be where they are at. I I should be further along. I should have been doing better with my money. It messed with my head. John's story resonates with me that money equals fighting. Money is confusing. Jaden talks about the anxiety with money. That was my story. Straight up anxiety, scarcity, always worried. Am I going to make it? 
Here's the thing. Comparison can do a little bit. It can do a little bit to move the needle. Can it be inspirational? Absolutely. Is it motivational? 100%. Is it transformational? I'm not so sure. I know that it was not for me because a scarcity mindset is paralyzing. You get stuck. I want to talk um, just a little bit more nerdy for a moment, if I could. I want to talk about brain science. Why start now, right? That's what you're thinking. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the brain because this is how we are affected in our minds. Uh, I want to talk about neural pathways. So basically what it means is this, is we have all grown up in certain circumstances with uh, life experiences that have formed the way that we think. So even as young kids and into, uh, into our teenage years and even into young adulthood, we are forming uh, what's called neural pathways. They're basically like, like roads in your brain on which the information travels so that you understand the world around you. And so over time, as you're young, you're, you're getting all of this information sort of downloaded into you and it's forming a certain way of thinking, behaving, uh, believing about the world. Now, over time, sometimes in your early 20s, that starts to shut down naturally, unless you go out of your way to start learning new things. So think about in your 20s and how you thought about money at that point and what kinds of experiences formed those ways of thinking. So neural pathways had been created in your brain to think a certain way and behave a certain way based on the way that you think. Now, here's the thing. If you don't add any contradiction in there, any change in there, and you start to firmly root these pathways, uh, they become well-worn paths in your brain. They just become the few limited roads that the information travels in your brain. That can actually be really unhealthy in your brain and actually very dangerous, Because then what happens is if any new information comes into your head, it's immediately seen as a threat. It's a change. It's it's something where you you clam up a little bit and you're like, whoa, uh, I don't recognize that thought. That's, That's a foreign thought. I'm not familiar with that. And so you freeze or you resist it and you want to fight back or you get incredibly fearful. So, for example, let's talk about money. If you have a mindset that is rooted in scarcity, I don't have enough, I'm never going to have enough, I don't know how I'm going to make it, that's your thought process for 15, 20, 30 years, and then all of a sudden you go and sit in the church and they say, hey, we'd like you to tithe. Hey, we'd like you to increase your giving. Immediately for me, what that did is set off alarm bells in my head, and I would have panic attacks, I would feel like I would want to throw up in my mouth because I could not handle it. Let me put it this way in, in terms of the pathways in our brain and how this, how this all pans out. I want you to think about a path or a road, for example. Let's talk about Warren Road right out here, okay? The, the little passage between Lily and Hagerty. You know what section I'm talking about? Uh, I, when I first moved here, I traveled that spot. I had to travel it to get here to work. And it is so filled with bumps and potholes and like random extra pieces of asphalt that you're like, whoa, I got to miss that so you don't like completely destroy your car. You know what I'm talking about? And it would just like make me anxious every time I'm going on this road, this stretch of road. And every once in a while, every spring they'd come along and they'd fill it with like Elmer's glue and duct tape, right? Uh, or asphalt from time to time if you're lucky. And, and, but then, you know, the next storm or the next freeze would come by and then it would just all get washed away or the snowplow would go over it and drag it all out. And so then it's even worse, right? 
Well, then last year, sometimes it gets so bad, so dangerous, in fact, that there was one giant pothole in the westbound lane. And I'm driving at about 4.30, 5 o'clock at night. It's, I mean, there's cars everywhere, right? And I'm driving and I see, I remember that there is a giant pothole there because I almost hit it on my way into work. And so now I'm getting ready. I'm preparing to, to uh, go around the pothole as best I can. This time, they didn't even fill it with asphalt or Elmer's glue or duct tape or Tic Tacs or anything else. What they filled it with this time was a giant orange and white barricade in the middle of the lane. So now I'm like, I'm going 40, what's the speed limit? I was going the speed limit. Um, (laughs) I'm going the speed limit in my lane and there's a giant barrier in the pothole in the lane. There's nowhere else I can go except for into oncoming traffic because that's not dangerous, right? All of these cars are coming for me and I'm like, I had to speed up to get around this barrier before the next crop of cars was gonna come and have a head-on collision. No matter what way I went, there was danger. No matter what I did. It's not until somebody came along, I don't know if it was the city or the county, and completely tore up the road and made it all brand new. They repaved the road and now I'll come on my day off and I will just ride back and forth on that little section. It is so smooth. It is nice. I can drink my coffee and I don't spill. I mean, this is first world problems, right? Like this, this was a whole new change. Here's the thing. We do this in our brains. We develop these neural pathways, these roads And what we do is we never learn new information. We don't want to learn new information. And if that information that we were raised with, if that learning, those experiences that we were raised with formed a certain kind of pathway and never got disrupted or interrupted, it gets firmly rooted in there and it becomes a well-worn pathway that's filled with all kinds of bumps, chunks of asphalt, potholes, and it's dangerous. It is unhealthy for your brain physically to experience that. This is what it looks like to have a scarcity mindset is you are so stuck, paralyzed in your mind about your relationship with money that any new information, any little bit of inspiration even, even being told a story about somebody halfway across the world that has great needs, it's not gonna change your mindset. Might move your heart a little bit, but it's not going to move you toward lifelong transformation. What needs to happen then is something dramatic. We need to tear up the roads in our brains. You need to completely repave the pathway in our brains. This is what Paul means when he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Something major has to come in. And, and hearing a few inspirational stories or, hey, they're doing it better than you, actually doesn't lead to transformation. It leads to more shame. It's like somebody coming in with a little shovel of asphalt and putting in the pothole only to get ruined once again once another financial storm comes, once another bill comes that you weren't expecting, once another late fee comes in that you're just like, oh my gosh, this is, it's just piling up and it, increases the anxiety and increases the shame when you go to church and they're like, hey, you need to give more, you need to do this. And you just are paralyzed unless you tear up the road and repave it. 
How is it possible that this Macedonian church who has nothing can somehow behave and think and believe in a place of freedom and contentment and abundance? How do we get there? I'm gonna read verse five one more time. It says this, their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. The first action, to give themselves to the Lord. What does that look like? What does it look like to me, for me to give myself over to the Lord? Well, Paul actually already talked about this to this same church, to the Corinthian church, a few chapters before. In chapter five, he says this. He's talking about the mindset in verse 13. He says, if it seems we're crazy, right? If it seems we're crazy, it's to bring, bring glory to God. And if we're in our right minds, well, then it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. And since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. That word know is an intimate knowing. And then verse 17, if you grew up in church, you probably heard a version of this verse before. It says this, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. There is a dramatic shift. There's a drastic change in their mindset, how they perceive themselves now in light of who Christ is and what he has done. We're going to talk more about that next week. But in this moment, my guess is these Macedonians, to give themselves to the Lord, this is what it looked like. They have given themselves fully. They belong to Christ and everything shapes everything else. That's why Jaden talked about our identity being rooted in Jesus. In fact, if any of you give anything, I hope that it's coming from a place of an identity that is rooted in Jesus and nothing else. I want us to give, to be generous because of this place where we have given ourselves to the Lord. Now, you might be stopping me and be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I struggle with money, Jared. I, I, I have a scarcity mindset, but that doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. I, I've given myself to the Lord. I, I'm a faithful person. I, I love Jesus with my whole heart. I just happen to struggle with my money. And I would say, me too. Absolutely. What I'm not saying is that if you give yourself to the Lord, that you're not going to struggle with money. Here's the thing. From my story, I absolutely give myself to the Lord. Back in the eighth grade, I was a pastor for 13 years and still money and scarcity was fighting the battle in my head. They were fighting to keep control of me. I was controlled by the love of Christ, absolutely. But money was still fighting a battle, still putting up a good fight in my head. And here's the thing, it was difficult because on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing about the needs of the people around the world, but I'm sitting next to people who drove to church that day in Maseratis and Porsches. So I'm confused in my head about what it looks like to be generous. I'm confused about how to move forward and I am paralyzed. 
I needed to tear up the road and repave it with something new. Here's the thing, I, I, I struggled, I felt like, but I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm doing all of these things. And in fact, Paul says that to the Corinthians, he actually affirms all of the ways that they're, they're great in their faith. He says, since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us or for us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I felt like the Corinthians for 13 years as a pastor. I'm doing all of these things, but yet money still has a hold on my mind and my heart. I needed to tear up the road. I needed to live into the code that's on the wall there, whatever it takes, wherever it takes us, literally. Literally, wherever. You know what happened? I moved. I came here. I got a job here. (laughs) I left my house. I left the state that we were in. I left the schools that our kids were in and we picked up our family and moved here, not because of money, but because I believe God had a call on my life to move into this church to be part of a multi-ethnic disciple-making movement. Absolutely, that's why we came. What I didn't know is that God was gonna use this experience to heal my heart, to tear up the road in my mind, the pathways that I'd created, the the stuckness of being in a scarcity mindset. And what had happened was I sat down across from our lead pastor, Nathan, and he's interviewing me and we're getting to the final interview, I think. I'm thinking I'm gonna get the job. And he says, here's the deal. If you come on staff here, you will tithe. Now, here's the thing. I'd never tithed. I had never tithed up to that point. I had been a pastor for 13 years and never gave 10% of my income. I gave from time to time inconsistently, but I never tithed. And the moment he said that, it was like alarm bells going off in my head. I'm immediately getting sweaty. I'm I'm having another panic attack. I want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. uh, And I'm getting scared. And I just had this sense that this is what God was calling me to. I'm going to be obedient to it. And so I came into this knowing that I have to tithe. This, this is an expectation. I just, I'm going to do it. And I was terrified to do that. Terrified because of for 13, but really for probably 30 years, a scarcity mindset controlled me. It's not until I tore up the road completely and said, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to start with a tithe. And now every other decision beyond that will flow from there. And here's the thing. The first year was still a little scary. And then the second year, a little bit better. And then the third year, much better. And now I'm three and a half years into this. And I can honestly say that I have experienced freedom. I am living into contentment, but I am still growing toward an abundance mindset. It took I would say 13 years to get to that place. That giving myself to the Lord and then allowing him to control me with his love, but ultimately form and shape my understanding of how to relate to money takes time. It takes time. Healing is not an instant thing for me. And it might not be for you. This is what Paul is referring to to say, you're doing great. He's affirming them, but keep going. I don't know what your story is. 
And I don't know where you're at with money. I don't know how much you make. I don't know how much you give. I don't know if you give. And so I don't know what the conversation around money does to your heart and your mind. I do know a couple. I mentioned last week in our table talk, I I mentioned, I sort of hypothesized that some people probably won't come to this this series because it's just too much. It's too anxiety-inducing, and so they just will choose not to come. Well, then later that night, I got several emails and prayer requests of people saying, Pastor Jared, I'm so sorry. I just couldn't come. I knew what you were going to be talking about, and I knew that that wasn't going to be good for me. And so I didn't come. I recognize what money does to us. And then on top of that, I recognize what money and the concept of giving does to our hearts and our minds. But what I want for us is to experience freedom. Freedom from the control that money has on our hearts and our minds. Freedom to move from scarcity into trust and utter dependence on God. And I can say that confidently now because of the journey that I've been on. If you were to ask me three, five, ten years ago, I would not be on the stage giving you this message because I would be so stuck. I wouldn't want to heap shame on you because I'd be heaping shame on myself. I want you to join me on the journey toward freedom and ultimately toward contentment and abundance. So here's my question for you. How is God calling you to tear up the road and repave a path toward freedom? And I don't have the answer for you. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like because every one of your stories is different. Every one of your experiences is different. The the clear action step that I can give you, the practical action step that I will give you and that we will give in this series is to give. Just start by giving. Whatever amount that that looks like for you. I would specifically encourage those of you who give from time to time to begin giving a recurring gift, a consistent gift. Start the discipline of giving. That might be a stretch for you. Is that how God might be calling you to tear up the road and repave it with something new? And then for others, you might be called into something more. Not only to give a recurring gift, but to even give 10%, to give a tithe. Or to increase your giving. That's a practical step that I can give each and every one of us. And we are all on that journey too. Our staff is all committed to giving 10%. And this last summer, we decided to increase our giving by 2% to grow and generosity beyond. You need to ask that question. You need to do the work with the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you and to ask you, what is the thing that's going to be a stretch for you? And what's a stretch for you might not be a stretch for me or vice versa. But identify, identify one action, one way, one rhythm that may stretch you this week. I want to invite you to stand if you are able. For some of you, this idea of giving yourself to the Lord might seem like a new concept, might seem like a scary concept. If I do that, what, what then next is God going to ask me to do? But maybe you are sick and tired of the fear associated with money or with anything else. And you are exhausted 
at the shame and the anxiety and the fear that you experience not knowing what tomorrow looks like. I want to invite you into freedom and to allow Christ's love to control you, to experience him in a whole new way, to encounter his love and his grace and his mercy that wouldn't come to you and be like, you give that much, shame on you. That is not what Jesus does. That's not who he is. But to experience his love, it's a move into freedom. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray along with me. You could pray in your own words, your own heart, or if you need help, allow my words to be your prayer. God, we are asking you, dependent on you today. God, I'm so exhausted by the ways in which I thought about you, about money. So many sleepless nights, so afraid, wondering, are you going to be there? Are you going to show up, God? Are you going to provide? And God, I'm so grateful that I can take a step of faith toward freedom, knowing that you will catch me even if I fall. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, listening online, who are stuck in a way of thinking. God, would you come in by your Holy Spirit's power, repave the streets, repave the pathways in their brain that keep them stuck in a way of thinking. God, help them to move toward freedom and health. We will trust you to catch us. Welcome back. I hope that you found that message encouraging, um, maybe even challenging. Uh, Like Pastor Jared said, talking about generosity and giving of finances can be really tough uh, and really hard. So if you're struggling with that discussion or or with hearing a message about that, um, not only can you reach out to our pastors uh, for a one-on-one conversation, uh, but you can also fill out a connect card so that we can get you plugged into community and so that you can have some of those difficult conversations and process some of those difficult things in community uh, the way that we're supposed to and the way that God's people uh, function best. So be sure to fill one of those out. Um, but I hope you have a blessed week. I hope that uh, this week you begin to experience the freedom uh, in Christ, specifically in the area of your finances. Uh, have a blessed week, and, and we'll talk to you real soon. See ya.